This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 31st, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're joined by two guests. Carlos Del Rio is Professor of Medicine and Global Health at Emory University School of Medicine and Professor of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. He's also Executive Associate Dean for Emory at Grady Memorial Hospital. He was executive director of the National AIDS Council in Mexico and is a member of the National Academy of Medicine in this country. He's worked to engage diverse communities in the COVID epidemic, and he's advised organizations as different as the City of Atlanta, the NCAA, and Tyler Perry Studios. Chidi Akusobi, our other guest, was born in Nigeria but came to New York as a young child. He was an undergraduate at Yale, a Gates Scholar at the University of Cambridge, and is currently in his final year of the Harvard MD-PhD program, where he's a Soros Fellow. He has a strong interest in equity in healthcare, and he's been involved in outreach efforts to Black communities in Boston, particularly around the COVID-19 vaccines. We'll be talking today about vaccines, and I'll note that both Carlos and Lindsay were investigators on the vaccine trial that studied mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine. But before we discuss COVID-19 and equitable access to vaccines, let's briefly discuss the news about vaccines this week. We heard through press releases and the popular media about the results of another large phase three trial, this one for CHADOX-1 and COVID-19, the vaccine produced by Oxford and AstraZeneca. This vaccine has already been tested in a large trial and has been administered to millions of people outside the United States. So what do we learn from this newer trial? So this trial is a bit different because it was performed to enable the company to apply for an emergency use authorization in the U.S. I hesitate to quote any numbers because they appear to be something of a moving target. But the bottom line, as reported by the company, was that the vaccine sounded efficacious and there were no particular concerns about safety. I think we should wait to see the final data before reaching any firm conclusions. Nevertheless, the overall message is very encouraging. There's been considerable attention in the press on the reporting of the trial, it's discouraging to me that the focus has been on issues surrounding the press release rather than what appears to be good news. I don't know what the final results will show, and several people have pointed out that the timeline for the approval of this vaccine is such that it might only become available in the U.S. when there are already plenty of other vaccines that had already been authorized. But it's important to keep in mind that this vaccine is extremely important internationally. Oxford and AstraZeneca have agreed to make it widely available at a very low price, and its physical characteristics, the fact that it can be stored at higher temperature and stably, mean that it can be easily distributed to much of the world. So we'll see how well it actually works, but I hate to think that its reputation is being tarnished by actions that have nothing to do with its safety and efficacy. Steve, you bring up the point that the Chadox vaccine data are coming out and allow us to have some understanding of the safety, efficacy, potential utility. But I will take issue with choice of words. And to highlight for our community, Dr. Del Rio and I were not past investigators for the trials. We are current investigators. And I think what has happened in our community in this age of rapid communication, we go from press release informing us of what works and doesn't to emergency use authorization, to the studies are now done. The studies are two-year studies typically. We need time to understand the safety and efficacy over time. As data emerge, 
which tell us about meaningful efficacy. We as a community must know those data, so they need to be shared, and we must act upon them. But we should not confuse rapid dissemination of information with the final results of well-planned studies. And I harp on that because the community in general is responding each day as if we have the final answer. While unfortunately, this pandemic is in evolution. And the phase three, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson studies are all ongoing. Volunteers are still in the studies. Long-term follow-up is going on to understand durable immunity, efficacy, and safety. And we as a community need to be able to better handle this process of learning rather than we have the answer. And I know Carlos has also been dealing with these issues as I have, as our community reacts to immediate information without necessarily stopping to fully think through where we are in the response and what we're learning. You know, Lindsay, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one thing that to me has been particularly hard is this issue of science by press release. You know, the other day, for example, I read something that said, oh, AstraZeneca published new results. They didn't publish anything. They had a press release which updated their results. And we still yet to see a publication of this data. We haven't, I'm looking forward to even see the regulatory package that they're going to be submitting to Burpax and the FDA, because the reality is a lot of the data would actually be there. But I think this vaccine also, beyond what we've seen and what we've heard, has the issue of safety that has tarnished it, not only stopped the trial several times and stopped enrollment for some concerns, but now this whole issue about the clotting events. And there's a recent publication that is not yet peer reviewed that suggests that there may be a new syndrome that they call vaccine-induced prothrombic immune thrombocytopenia that suggests something very similar to HIT, you know, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia with low platelets and hypocoagulable conditions. And again, I think we need to follow these patients. We need to follow these participants. I don't call them patients because they're healthy volunteers. We need to follow them closely and we need to continue the data. And in fact, as the data is evolving in New England Journal of Medicine, you guys published last week, three fascinating correspondence showing that the vaccines, at least both the Pfizer and the Moderna, seem to also decrease the capacity of somebody to become infected, right? The infectivity in healthcare workers. So I think, you know, a lot of the data is evolving, is emerging. And how do we take all that data and incorporate it into our daily practice and incorporate it into our messaging? I think it's really hard to say. When we started saying, we don't know if these vaccines prevent you from getting infected, people translated that into, these vaccines don't prevent infection. And now you have to, again, sort of rethink your words and how you communicate. And I think one thing we're learning is how do you communicate to people? It's complicated because what retains in their head may not necessarily be what you're trying to say. It's interesting that the sources of information change over time. I think it's absolutely true that the trials like the Moderna one that both of you are involved in is ongoing and still collecting information. And it's collecting it in a relatively intensive way as compared to surveillance data. On the other hand, we now have a lot of real-world data that are showing us things that we would never see in trials. For example, adverse events like the one you just mentioned, Carlos, that we only see when we scale things up to the millions of people sorts of numbers. So I think that we're learning different things from different places right now. That happens with anything, but it's happening much more strikingly now because of the pace of the release and uptake of these vaccines. I think, Eric, you're absolutely right. There are different lines of evidence being generated, some more rigorous than others. 
But we need all of these lines of evidence because hopefully they point to the truth and to better understanding the biology. But I want to underscore Carlos's point of science by press release because it's very challenging. We're in unprecedented times with the pandemic and with how we communicate and with the requirements around communicating. The press releases are needed by companies because of SEC rules. So there are rules outside of medicine that companies have to follow, which they should and they must. We, though, as public health clinicians, patients, people seeking countermeasures like vaccines, then have to interpret these bits of information as they come out, changing a bit each month, week, or day to say, what does it mean? And then not to undermine the trust of the public, because why yesterday did you say the number was this? And today you say the number is that. And then how do people know what to believe? And I think we need to think very carefully about how we communicate as a society, as a medical profession, as a journal, where we respect the need to share information quickly, but must understand that in doing that, the data are imperfect and subject to change and how the converging lines of evidence help inform us. But I think it's a big challenge in front of us as a community. No, very much so, Lindsay. I think that hopefully one of the things that you come out of this pandemic learning is that we need to do a better job teaching people science communication and how to communicate with the public. And I think events like this, this podcast, and other things that are trying to get scientific information in a more digestible and understandable way are really important. But I do think that you know, in our medical training, we definitely need to do a better job teaching science communication because it is becoming critically important. And this pandemic, I think, has showed us that better than any time that how critical this is. If I can just chime in, I also think it's important not only to better communicate science, but also to build public trust. And one of the ways that we build public trust is actually making sure that any of the numbers or any of the stats that are actually put out to the public actually can stand on firm ground. And so science by press release, as we're talking about, makes that very tricky. And also in the age of social media, where you have rampant disinformation and rampant misinformation, it's really important that we are actually countering that with facts and figures that people can latch onto and say, no, I believe this, and I'm going to use this information to make an informed choice about whatever health care decision they want to make. Let's turn to the issue of vaccination in minority communities. It's important to emphasize the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 has had among Black, Latinx, and Native American people. The numbers are striking. Looking at almost any metric, number of cases, number of hospitalizations, number of deaths, these groups have suffered a tremendous burden. And of course, this is all occurring within the broader issue of structural racism in medicine. But to focus specifically on COVID-19, what do you see as the major factors driving this pandemic in minority communities? Let me start off by saying that as far as we can tell, the differences are social rather than biological. And this is something that we've seen in infectious diseases for all of history. Infectious diseases disproportionately affect the most vulnerable members of society. There was a strain of thinking back a few decades ago that infectious diseases were going away, were no longer going to be a problem. And even at that time, they were no longer becoming a problem in the U.S. and other developed countries, but they remained major killers throughout the world. So... COVID-19 actually fits an existing pattern. And I think those of us who worked, uh, for example, on HIV, this is not surprising to us, right? We've seen the disproportionate impact of HIV in among African-American and minority communities for a long time in our country. And we have to remind ourselves that that's not how HIV started. HIV started in this country 
that's a disease of middle-class white men who, you know, could travel to other places. And then that started an HIV epidemic in the early 80s. And then, you know, quickly thereafter, it transitioned to be a disease affecting minorities, primarily, you know, disproportionate impact on African-Americans and Latinos, which is a little bit what we saw in COVID. If you remember the first cases of COVID in our country were travelers who had gone to Europe or gone to other places and then came here. And then it, you know, it didn't start with minority communities, but we see this over and over, except in COVID, we saw it in, in nanoseconds as opposed to over several years. But we have to remember that infectious diseases tend to do this. It reminds me of uh, one time speaking with the late Jonathan Mann and asking him, you know, when I go to a country, what's the best strategy to find where HIV is? And he said to me, look at the communities that are most disproportionately impacted by society. Look at where the disadvantaged populations are. And that's where you're going to find HIV because these infections tend to find, you know, those populations for you. You can follow the infection by looking at structural issues that impact inequalities. And I think this epidemic has really shown us in a way that hopefully as a country, we will begin to really take this seriously and stop talking about health inequalities simply as a matter of fact, and really start addressing the true underlying factors that are driving a lot of these inequities. And just to answer your question specifically, people have done a lot of work looking to what are the factors that are leading to this disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black and brown communities. And the issues are multifactorial, and as Eric said, not at all biological. And so you have Black and brown people more likely to be essential workers, and thus more exposed to COVID-19. You have Black and brown communities more likely to live in multi-generational homes. And so there's a density aspect too. You're more likely to encounter COVID if you're living in housing situations where there are a lot of people around you. There's also the fact of pre-existing health conditions and the fact that, you know, because of lots of structure issues, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and other conditions are more likely found in Black and brown communities. And we know those conditions interact with COVID in a way that makes the virus more deadly. And then also other structural issues like lack of access to PPE, this lack of access to COVID testing, and also, as we'll talk about later, I'm sure, uh, vaccination sites as well. So all these issues sort of compound and exacerbate each other and lead to a disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black and brown communities here in the U.S. So given the disproportionate impact of disease in these communities, it's all the more important that its members be vaccinated. But unfortunately, vaccination rates have been lower among minorities than non-minorities in the United States. How much of this is due to differences in the availability of the vaccines in these communities? You know, I think that when you try to address health disparities, I think it's really important that we address two terms that are important. One is equality and one is equity. Equality means to give everybody the same resources. Equity means to really distribute resources based on needs of the recipients. And what we've seen with the vaccines is actually how giving equality, i.e. everybody has to do it through an online system to schedule it, actually exacerbates inequalities as opposed to decreases inequality. So we need to be careful that sometimes by giving equality, you're actually not doing what you need to be doing. You really need it here to actually make it a lot easier for minority communities to access the vaccine if you truly wanted to increase uptake in minority communities. But the fact that we made it equal for everybody actually makes it incredibly unequal. And you've seen this over and over in different communities. I remember, you know, Mayor de Blasio in New York in a press conference saying, you know, we put all these places to get your vaccine up in the Bronx, but the people going to get the vaccine are the white people, the wealthy people that live in the Upper East Side. Well, because they're the ones able to actually schedule the appointments and they look at maps and they have, they're savvy and they're able to figure out where to go. Other places like DC have gone to strategies, for example, saying, 
you know, in order to get a vaccine, you need to live in the following zip codes. So they made it easier for people living in certain zip codes to get the vaccine. So I think we need to be very careful about how we roll out things. And I think if you look at the vaccine rollout, as positive as it has been, it's pretty much designed to make it much more accessible to people that have resources, to people that have a car, to people that have internet access. And that in itself actually has exacerbated inequalities in vaccine uptake. I was speaking with an organization last week called the Bronx Community Health Network, and I'm from the Bronx. And so it was a really great opportunity to sort of go back to the Bronx and talk to people about the vaccines, but also about their strategies to increase vaccine uptake in people in the Bronx. Because as Dr. Del Rio said, a lot of the sites in the Bronx early on in the vaccination efforts were populated from people who didn't actually live in the Bronx. And so some of the strategies that they have now employed to increase vaccine access in the Bronx is actually setting up an appointment system that's not only based online, but also via telephone, phone calls as well. I think for people who are especially older, that is a more accessible way to schedule vaccines than going online to a website that is hard to manage. Um, you also have a vaccine information that's set up in different languages. So it's not just English. A lot of people in the Bronx speak Spanish and other languages as well. And so um, that's another way that you increase access, which is actually changing the language in which people are receiving the information from. They are also calling people who are homebound and calling people who they know are high risk and saying, I think you should schedule this vaccine. That's another way that you can also increase access. And then again, presenting the information, not just on online forums, but also in places that people frequent, like supermarkets and churches and also outdoor activities, such that you're not only seeing the vaccine information from places online, but that wherever you're walking and going out through life, you're getting bombarded with signs to vaccinate. So when Dr. Dario made a great point about equity versus equality, and I think knowing full well that there's like structural barriers that prevent people from accessing vaccine appointments via only online systems, it's upon us in the healthcare systems to find new and innovative ways to reach people where they are. And you have, you know, you made the point of language. You know, I'm from Mexico. I speak Spanish. I've been working a lot with Latinos trying to get them into vaccine programs. And one of the things you discover is, for example, Nowhere does the information say, or very rarely does it say the vaccine is free. You don't need to show your insurance card. And in fact, when you try to register, most of the time, for example, in the CVS registration system, it asks for your social security number. It asks for your insurance information. It doesn't say you don't need to enter, but the moment it asks for it, if you happen to be undocumented, you say, well, this is not for me. If you happen to don't have insurance, you just say, this is not for me. So even the registration system, if you're able to access, has so many issues there that for somebody who doesn't have insurance or who may be undocumented or who may not speak the language well, you automatically say, you know, this is just too complicated or this is not for me. So we need to also make it easy. And, and I have found that one of the things that works the best is actually simply having drop-in appointments. We've worked, for example, with Latin American Association here in Atlanta, or just making announcements to the community, this Saturday we'll be vaccinating. And by doing so, you know, we've been able to get six, seven hundred, a thousand people coming on a, on a Saturday showing up to get vaccinated. And then as they're coming in, you register them. So one possibility is also to just get rid of the appointment because quite frankly, the appointment may actually be an impediment for people to get the vaccine. In Israel, where they have a lot of vaccine relative to the number of people living there, part of their outreach, not particularly for minority communities, but for everybody was to give it out in bars and ice cream shops and in various places is our distribution system just too funky right now to be giving it out in community centers and churches and places where people are going anyway? Well, I think you have two issues, Eric. Number one is 
you have a not a national strategy for vaccination, but you have 50 different strategies. Each state has a different criteria, different systems, different registration programs. It even makes it incredibly hard. I deal with this almost on a daily basis. Somebody got their vaccine in California, the first dose, now they're in Georgia, they get to get their second dose. And sometimes you can't do it because the state won't allow you to get the second dose. I mean, it really is, it's, it, we make it complicated. The second thing is that, you know, we've never had in our country an adult immunization program. And we could have used many times, we could have used one year the flu vaccine as a way to roll out how would you do a massive immunization program. We never did that. And it should have been really a tabletop exercise of how we're going to vaccinate 80% of the adult population and use flu as a vehicle to do that. But we never did that. But I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And you know, the fact that we don't have a national adult immunization program meant that every state has had to build it from the ground up. So as clunky as it has been, I think it's been fairly successful. And I would give kudos to all the states because the reality is, you know, we're vaccinating two and a half to three million people a day. It's not perfect. There's a lot of disparities, but we're doing way better than other countries. I mean, think about what Europe is doing in other countries. So I would say that of all the things that have not worked in the response to this pandemic, the rollout of immunization has worked much better than anything we've seen so far. Now, one of the problems we have, as you know, is that Operation Warspeed put a lot of money into vaccine development and the trials and put almost no money into the implementation phase of the vaccination. And as somebody said to me, it's like we built a very expensive plane. We just forgot to build a landing strip. Now, in the new law that passed giving funds for COVID, there's money there for states to actually implement this. And if you know every single state, a lot of these vaccination places are being run right now by volunteers, primarily because there's no money to hire people. So I think we also need the infrastructure and the resources to do this in an effective way. And I think as more resources will come, we need to really release a creativity. And creativity will then lead to innovation and I think will allow us to deal with a lot of issues we're currently dealing with. It's been reported that there's less interest in some minority communities in receiving the vaccine. If that's in fact the case, what do you think the concerns in those communities might be? I think it's important to talk about hesitancy, but at the same time, I do want to dispel the notion that Black people or the Black community is more hesitant than white people and, and other races. NPR actually recently did a poll a couple of weeks ago showing that vaccine hesitancy among different demographic groups, and they found that among Black and white Americans, there are equal amounts of people, about 25%, who said that they were not planning to take the vaccine. And so I think vaccine hesitancy is an important thing to talk about, but it's not that Black people are somehow more hesitant. I think at the same time that we talk about hesitancy, we should also be talking about access as well. And I think it's really access that is really driving these disparities that we're seeing. But in talking about hesitancy, you know, both my parents are actually nurses in the Bronx. Um, they've been nurses for over 20, 25 years. And when the vaccines initially came out, they, under no circumstances, wanted to take the vaccine. They were actually quite hesitant. And their major concern was the fact that the vaccine came out really quickly and they had no sense of whether or not the vaccine would be safe for something developed so quickly. I think when I talk to people out in the community, that's really their major concern. Like, is this safe? How did we get a vaccine so quickly? So I think, you know, talking about the scientific process and the fact that mRNA vaccines have been researched since the mid 90s and it's really built to the foundation of decades of research really allays people's concerns. 
And then there's also the fact that there's just distrust in the community for the medical establishment for a historical reasons, but also current reasons as well. You know, current disparities, current issues around listening to Black people's concerns when they enter the medical establishment. So all these things, you know, the speed of the vaccine and the fact that you have some distrust leads people to be hesitant. But it's important to say that they're not more hesitant than sort of the average uh, white American. And so when trying to get people vaccines, I think we talk about hesitancy, but we also talk about access as well in the same conversation. Yes, I agree with you 100%. Each community is a little different. And I think we need to distinguish the problem. We use this name hesitancy for a lot of things. And the reality is you have different reasons why people may not want to take the vaccine. A colleague of mine talks about people that are slow to yes. They're not hesitant. They simply want more answers given. They have questions about the speed, they have questions about safety, they have other questions they want to address. But you also have people that mistrust the system. You also have people that have trouble accessing the system. You have issues that we talk with Hispanics about, you know, not being able to speak the language, about worrying that you're going to get deported if you get vaccinated, et cetera, and distrust in the government. But you also have, for example, we know that one of the highest levels of vaccine mistrust is among the rural living Republicans. You know, it's hard if you said throughout this pandemic that this hoax, you're not going to accept the vaccine for something that didn't exist to begin with. So I think all those different reasons. But one of the groups that I'm particularly interested in hearing your impression is one of the most complicated groups for us in the highest hesitancy that I've seen, for example, in healthcare. It's actually young people. You know, it's very easy to convince somebody 65 and older, look, this vaccine will protect you from dying. That sounds like a good deal. But when you get to young people and you say, well, take this vaccine, but it doesn't change much in your life. And, you know, most young people know that COVID is a mild disease and they have no big deal. I think you have a lot more resistance to take the vaccine. And I think there's also a lot of misinformation about impacting your reproduction potential and other things that make a lot of young people very hesitant to take the vaccine. So in my point is that there's not one answer. It's almost like every population has needs to address their concerns. And, you know, I keep on telling people that all vaccination is local, paraphrasing your good congressman from Massachusetts. Well, with, with all due respect to my fellow discussants, um, Chidi, I think you're the only one here who can represent young people. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And actually, when I talk to cousins and friends of mine back home, a lot of them are actually vaccine hesitant because they believe that COVID doesn't really affect them. You know, the mortality rate for COVID among the young is really low. But what I found is really effective when talking to young people is two things. One, the possibility of getting COVID, being fine, but then having this long COVID symptoms. And if you talk to people about the fact that you may be fine from COVID, but have all these extra sequelae that come after an infection, some of which don't sound great at all, people then start to think about their risk of COVID a little bit differently. And so I think contextualizing COVID as not just an acute disease that you can get and recover from, but also you know a disease that you're rolling the dice in terms of your long-term health outcomes. So that's one. Um, and two, I think situating young people in communities that they exist in, so knowing that they interact with their parents and their grandparents, they have co-workers and friends of theirs that are more vulnerable. And oftentimes you actually don't know people's vulnerabilities because it's not like people are talking about themselves being immunocompromised or talking about sicknesses that they're dealing with. And so when I talk to people my generation, I say you can A, get long COVID and B, you don't know who you're interacting with that you may be jeopardizing with being actively infected. And I think that that message rings a little bit more salient to them. I mean, I think that Shirdi, both you and Carlos, you know, raise very important points that different communities, different individuals have different issues and it's not a one size fits all. And that's really important. 
And the challenge is how to get high quality information to the communities and the information that they need or interested in or need to learn more about. And Carlos, I think your earlier point about information and disinformation really has complicated how we communicate with each other and how do we elevate the dialogue with facts and the facts that are relevant to the receiving communities. And I think we have to do a lot more work in how we communicate and how we manage the internet and the epidemic of disinformation. But also, in addition to that, Lindsay, it's also the evolving information, right? The lack of information. When Chitty talked about right now about if you get the vaccine, you will not get COVID and this will prevent you from getting long COVID. The reality is we have no data to say that these vaccines will prevent long COVID. We think that's going to be the case, but we didn't even know if this vaccine prevented you from getting infected until recently. So even communication that is very complicated because, again, as the information is evolving, our message changes. And not uncommonly, somebody will say, well, how come you said this a month ago and now you're changing what you're saying? And that is also really complicated to get because if you're talking about getting trust in the community, changing the message is a very you know, rapid way to lose the trust. So how do you communicate scientific uncertainty and based on the facts that you think, and also based on the best available information, what assumptions can you make? Like the one you just made, Chitty, which I think is absolutely right. This vaccine will prevent you from getting long COVID. I think that's the case, but I cannot absolutely assure you. But you have to also be able to communicate that in a way that is reassuring that people trust you. And that takes time. And again, it goes back to the key to communication is timeliness and trust. And if you don't have trust, then you're not going to be able to communicate the facts that you need to communicate. So I'm going to ask you a very difficult question. And it's a follow-up to what you just said, Carlos. Building trust is a long-term process. And there are, as Chidi had referred to earlier, there are many reasons why different communities lack trust in medicine and the healthcare system. But it's not something that we can build overnight. And yet we have sort of an emergency right now where we have a problem to fix right now that doesn't go toward fixing the larger structural problems. Is it difficult to send the message that, look, we realize there are lots of problems with healthcare in general, with your engagement with the healthcare system, but give us a break here, take the vaccine now, and then we'll figure everything out later. Um, Is there a reason that anyone should trust us to do that? You know, that's a really complicated question. And, and again, trust is something that is not built overnight and it's going to take time. I would say that, you know, at my side, when we worked on the Moderna vaccine and enrollment, we reached out to the African-American community to increase enrollment of minorities. You know, we did it through our HIV partnerships because we had worked with that community for a long time. And we have a lot of trust in the African-American community working in HIV, and they were the ones that helped us then recruit people into the study. So it wasn't us necessarily reaching out to individuals that didn't know us. We went through a trusted channel. So I think it goes back to this whole issue of trying to find that trusted vehicle. And Chidi mentioned it, you know, you go to the churches, you go to the opinion leaders, you go to people that they trust more. I'm going to be, for example, this Saturday, we're doing a major vaccine event at Tyler Perry Studios, because we know Tyler has a trust of the community. And therefore, if he can put a call out saying, I'm going to be vaccinated at my studio. So we're moving from Grady Hospital, a whole operation to Tyler Perry Studio to vaccinate over there, rather than asking people to come to the hospital to do it. So it really means that you cannot necessarily think that you're going to develop the trust overnight in yourself. 
but you can use a trusted partner in order to develop that trust. Yeah, Carlos, we've had similar experience here in Boston, and I think your point about the HIV work, HIV treatment, HIV vaccine development, what Dr. Fauci and others have done over the last decades to really push community engagement, community involvement has been central to building the trust and the relationships in response to these health threats. And with our COVID vaccine development here in Boston, we initially went to the churches and they were suspicious of us because it was too quick. It was too fast. Two months later, they're now embracing and now advocates because of the engagement and the education and the continued growth of the database upon which the discussion is built. And I think that is very hard to do overnight like a light switch. It requires lots of engagement, interaction to really trust each other across domains. I'm involved in an organization here in Boston called We Got Us, which was founded by the current HMS student body president, Lash Nolan. And what We Got Us does is it's a collection of Black medical students and college pre-medical students, healthcare professionals, and community members. And we basically go out into the community, into the churches, into events that are happening, and also just canvassing out in Black neighborhoods here in Boston, so in Mattapan and Roxbury and other places. And there we're actually talking to people about the vaccines, but more so just offering ourselves as people to answer any question that they have in a safe space. And I think meeting people where they are, as we've talked about, and also just showing up and saying we care and we want to hear what you have to say and what your concerns are really starts the process of building trust. I think you can watch CNN and watch these news networks and see people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Walensky who do great jobs at disseminating information. But one, how often are people actually watching these figures? And two, you don't really know them, right? You're more likely to hear a message from someone that you have seen and trusted over a really long time. And two, you're also more likely to listen to someone when they actually show up in your lived space. And so I think We Got Us has been doing a really great job of actually going to the community and being present as resources to listen. And I think we've gotten really good feedback thus far from people who attend our different sessions. And trust also means that you need to dedicate, as you said, Chetty, you need to dedicate time to the community. In order to develop trust, what you hear over and over is don't come to us just when you need us. Be here present, be here with us, understand our issues, and don't just come whenever you need us for a study. And I think that's the other component, that this community trust is developing partnerships that are long-lasting, that don't just happen when this occurs. I do think, though, that as medical professionals, we play a particularly important role because over and over, studies tell us that a trusted figure is your doctor, your healthcare provider. And I do worry when it's actually people in the medical profession who say, oh, I don't trust this vaccine, so I don't think we need to take it because we can do all the education we want. And within seconds, that melts away because somebody who they trust gave them the information that this is something they shouldn't take. So we all have to really make sure that we are able to communicate effectively at our local level. And, you know, when you're working with medical students, when you're working with residents and young physicians, it's teaching them about how to give that very rapid, quick, simple, digestible message. I think it's important. You know, I don't need your p-values and your numbers. This is not Croy you're presenting at. This is the community. You need to give me a very simple presentation that I can understand. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric. And particularly, thank you, Carlos, and thank you, Chitty, for joining us today.